Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. Dairy farmers scored a big win last week. More of their products can be sold in Canada. We have an in-depth report on the progress of the successor to NAFTA, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. It's apple season here in Northern California, and up in the Sierra foothills, it's the key product in that area's burgeoning agritourism business. Also, we report on progress of the farm bill that stalled in Congress. Plus, we have the latest crop reports. All that and a lot more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Say goodbye to NAFTA. Say hello to the USMCA. We are one major step closer to having a new U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement to replace NAFTA. And Gary Crawford says there's a lot of good news in it for farmers. The reaching of a trade agreement with Canada at the last minute the other day certainly proves again what Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue was telling reporters back in December. That's typically when these uh, negotiations get done. Everyone works better with a timeline when it comes to negotiation. And just minutes before the deadline, U.S. and Canadian negotiators proved Sonny Purdue correct and arrived at a deal completing the negotiation phase of the three-way U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade deal. This is a very, very big deal for our farmers. President Trump at the White House talking with reporters about what was called NAFTA, then from now on called the USMCA, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. And just hours after the U.S. and Canada finally reached their part of the deal, the president told reporters... The deal includes a substantial increase in our farmers' opportunities to export American wheat, poultry, eggs, and dairy, including milk, butter, cheese, yogurt, and ice cream, to name a few. I want to be very specific. <laughs> the agreement does not open up the Canadian market totally to U.S. dairy products, but it does require Canada to increase its import quotas. And I know they can't open it completely. They have farmers also. You know, they can't be overrun. And I fully under and I tell them that. I say, look, I understand you have limits, but they could do much better. And we've opened it up to our farmers. Including wheat growers. Canada had been automatically classifying any U.S. wheat coming into Canada as feed quality, even if it was high food quality wheat. That, of course, automatically resulted in that wheat fetching a lower price. Under this agreement, that practice will stop. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said besides making a better deal for farmers... This is further proof that President Trump's trade negotiation strategy is working. A renewed USMCA, a new chorus agreement, and the continued progress with Japan can lead to further deals with other trading partners like the European Union and China. The dominoes are falling, and it's good news for U.S. farmers. As to the USMCA, President Trump says he'll sign it by the end of November, send it to Congress for its approval. He said if lawmakers consider the deal on its merit, it will pass easily because it's a great deal. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. According to the Washington Post, President Trump tweeted often about how unfair he thought it was that Canada charged such high tariffs on U.S. dairy products. Canada has a rather complex milk and dairy system. To ensure Canadian dairy farmers don't go bankrupt, the Canadian government restricts how much dairy can be produced in the country and how much foreign dairy can enter that to keep milk prices high. Trump didn't like that, and dairy was a major sticking point in the negotiations. Well, in the end, Canada is keeping most of its complex system in place, but it is giving greater market share to U.S. dairy farmers. U.S. negotiators say they got a major victory by forcing Canada to eliminate the pricing scheme for what are known as Class 7 dairy products. 
That means U.S. dairy farmers can probably send a lot more milk protein concentrate, skim milk powder, and infant formula to Canada, and those products are relatively easy to transport and store. The chief U.S. agricultural negotiator, Greg Dowd, explains some of the other benefits for America's dairy sector, thanks to the recent trade agreement between the U.S. and Canada. We have increased market access across a variety of products, including fluid milk, cheese, cream, butter, yogurt, things like that. And that access is actually a little bit better than what we would have gotten under the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Today, we export about $619, $620 million worth of dairy products to Canada. If you add up this access, if we filled it all, it would be somewhere in the neighborhood of an additional $240 million, plus or minus. The other thing that we worked very, very hard in this agreement was was to deal with Canada's Class 6 and Class 7 regime, and that allowed them to dump skim milk powder into third country markets. They were actually, in many instances, selling skim milk powder into Mexico, hauling it through the U.S., selling it into Mexico, cheaper than what we could sell it from New Mexico and Arizona dairies in the United States. That was causing quite a bit of consternation, and we were able to address that. They now have to do that based upon U.S. prices, and we actually have hard limits on how much skim milk powder and milk protein concentrates that Canada can export now. While the impact of trade disputes echoes throughout the farm economy, even farmers who sell all their crops domestically feel the impacts when trade disputes affect agricultural exports. California Farm Bureau President Jamie Johansson spoke to the State Board of Food and Agriculture last week, and he said when crops can't be exported as usual, they're sold in the domestic market, affecting prices there. He said Farm Bureau is encouraged by the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement that was finalized last week this a very, very big deal for our farmers. President Trump at the White House Monday talking with reporters about what was called NAFTA, from now on called USMCA, U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, this just hours after the U.S. and Canada finally reached their part of the deal. The deal includes a substantial increase in our farmers' opportunities to export American wheat, poultry, eggs, and dairy, including milk, butter, cheese, yogurt, and ice cream, to name a few. I want to be very specific. The agreement does not open up the Canadian market totally to U.S. dairy products. does require Canada, though, to increase its import quotas. And I know they can't open it completely. They have farmers also. They can't be overrun. And I fully under- and I tell them that. I say, look, I understand you have limits, but they could do much better. And we've opened it up to our farmers. The president will sign the USMCA by the end of November, send it to Congress for its approval. Trump said he thinks if lawmakers treat the deal on its merit... It will pass easily, because it's a great deal. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And here's Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue's statement on the finish of the negotiation phase of that trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. The great news of a new USMCA deal is important for our economy as a whole, but especially for our agricultural sector, which counts Canada and Mexico in our top three trading partners. I've long said that I believe our country is right in the middle of the best neighborhood on earth, North America, with valuable allies to our North and our South. We've secured greater access to these vital markets and will maintain and improve the highly productive, integrated agricultural relationship we have as nations. Notably, as one of the President's top goals, this deal eliminates Canada's unfair Class 7 milk pricing scheme cracks open additional access to U.S. dairy into Canada and imposes new disciplines on Canada's supply management system. The agreement also preserves and expands critical access for U.S. poultry and egg producers 
and addresses Canada's discriminatory wheat process to help U.S. wheat growers along the border become more competitive. As we celebrate this breakthrough, it's worth noting that there were many detractors who said it couldn't be done. But this is further proof that President Trump's trade negotiation strategy is working. A renewed USMCA, a new chorus agreement, and the continued progress with Japan can lead to further deals with other trading partners like the European Union and China. The dominoes are falling, and it's good news for U.S. farmers. I want to thank President Trump and our U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador Bob Lighthizer, for their perseverance, leadership, and hard work. Well, let's turn our attention to Asia. It's been an up-and-down road on the way to getting a trade agreement with Japan, but we may be a little closer to that now. The USDA's Gary Crawford has details. There have been many bumps in the road in U.S. agricultural trade relations with Japan over the years. All along, most everybody agreed with this November of 2015 comment from then-Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack. There's opportunity both for the U.S. and Japan to see expanded market opportunities. And it appeared a new agreement with Japan was a done deal when the U.S., along with Japan and 10 other nations, signed the Trans-Pacific Partnership in February 2016. But in January 2017, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the TPP, telling reporters the move was a great thing for the American worker, what we just did. So that left the alternative of negotiating directly with Japan. And in August of last year, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue told reporters I think we can get a better deal directly, but we need to get that done very quickly. Again, that was August 2017. Nothing much happened happened on that front. However, some people seem to have a knack for forecasting the future. And back in January of this year, the Agriculture Department's Undersecretary for Trade, Ted McKinney, told an audience that as far as some kind of trade agreement with Japan is concerned, I believe it is not a matter of if, but when something will come. And sure enough, something has come just a few days ago in New York after meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Abe, President Trump telling reporters, We've uh, agreed today to start trade negotiations between the United States and Japan. This was something that for various reasons over the years, Japan was unwilling to do. And now they are willing to do. So we're very happy about that. And I'm sure they will come to a satisfactory conclusion. I think it'll be something very exciting better than ever before on trade. I think it's going to be better for Japan and better for the United States. Now, in order to protect its own farmers, Japan has had tariffs on many U.S. products for a long time, including frozen beef and pork products, and those are issues that remain a problem for U.S. producers. But after an ag trade trip to Japan back in June, USDA Trade Undersecretary Ted McKinney again said the Japanese certainly don't have a problem with U.S. products. Buyers told him they love the products. Why? First, the quality. It's a good quality product. Hand in glove with that is the trust in the regulatory system that says it's safe. And then, you know, usually the U.S., with its size and scope, has an opportunity to deliver volumes of product. So U.S. products are an easy sell in Japan. Japan is already our fourth largest customer for U.S. ag products, buying $12 billion worth last year. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. And Crawford reports never has the world of agricultural trade been so exciting but so unpredictable. Take the U.S.-China situation, for example. Such a boring time in trade these days. Uh -huh, with tongue firmly in cheek there, that was USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney. His audience, a trade symposium in Washington put on by the United Fresh Produce Association. Of course, we have lots of things going on, the NAFTA negotiations, talks with other countries, and then there's the China problem, which some are calling a trade war. I'm not ready to call it a trade war. 
If you want to, that's fine. And well, whatever it is, McKinney says it won't be over until China recognizes that... You can't steal intellectual property. You can't force technology transfer just to allow access. Maybe someday they'll approve our biotechnology traits. Some of which have been awaiting approval for seven years, but McKinney told reporters... This is not a hostile relationship. It's actually quite warm. There's just some distinct differences. He said there are differences that can be settled, however, but how long is it going to take? I think we're more into months than anything else. He would not elaborate on how many months. So, with what could be a long trade dispute with China, many are asking whether the U.S. might reconsider its pullout from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's an 11-nation trade arrangement that does not include China, and in part was created to band those countries in that area together so they would have some market power in competing with China. One of President Trump's first acts was to pull the U.S. out of the TPP. Ted McKinney was asked about the possibility of the U.S. rejoining TPP. I think we have yet to see where we go on TPP. You know, I think the president teased us a couple of times on that. If they offered us a deal that I can't refuse on behalf of the United States, I would do it. But McKinney told his audience. We haven't heard anything that would revisit that, but we'll see. The day that McKinney was making those comments, the same day that world leaders were meeting in New York for several days of activities around the United Nations General Assembly meeting, President Trump had been scheduled to meet with the Prime Minister of Japan, one of the 11 countries involved in TPP, possibly other members. Maybe we'll see some announcements that clarify that kind of thing. And indeed, President Trump did make an announcement that would indicate little interest in rejoining TPP. After his meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister, Trump telling reporters... We're starting trade talks with Japan, and I'm sure we'll make a very good deal. He said the president, of course, has expressed his preference for bilateral agreements, not those involving 11 other countries, such as the TPP. McKinney says for sure the decision on that's certainly not his to make, and so... We'll just keep working with whatever hand or whatever direction we're dealt with. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. All the progress on trade agreements is well and good for agriculture in California and the United States, but farmers would really like a farm bill. You remember the farm bill that expired on September 30th? Lawmakers are expected to make progress towards passing a 2018 farm bill over the next several weeks. That's according to Michael Clements of the American Farm Bureau Federation. Farmers and ranchers need the certainty of a farm bill, but Congress has yet to reach an agreement, and the current farm bill just expired. However, Andrew Walmsley, American Farm Bureau Federation Congressional Relations Director, says lawmakers are making progress towards finishing the farm bill this year. Obviously, it's not ideal that we blew past the September 30th deadline without having a new farm bill, but it isn't necessarily the end of the world. The good news is that I think a lot of progress has been made on hopefully getting a 2018 farm bill done here in the upcoming weeks. Walmsley says the farm bill needs to be finished by the end of the year before farmers feel any impacts. Commodity programs, at least through the marketing year, will continue on. Crop insurance is permanently authorized. Nutrition programs will continue to go forward. It's not really till we get to January 1 where we could start seeing impacts to dairy. So there's a lot of work by staff and by the four principals to try to get a farm bill done, at least in agreement and going through the paperwork in the next few weeks so we can quickly get it back through both chambers of Congress after the midterms. He says farm Farmers and ranchers can help by talking with lawmakers about the need to finish the farm bill. I know it's harvest, but if they get an opportunity to see a member of Congress or attend a campaign event, they need to be asking the question, what are you doing to help get a farm bill done? We need to get a bill done, and there's no reason why we shouldn't here in the next few weeks. Michael Clements, Washington. 
There's another big winner here in California with that revised NAFTA deal reached with Canada. It's the California wine industry. CNBC reports that this follows the Trump administration's request for the help of the World Trade Organization to resolve that wine dispute with Canada over grocery store shelf access. Canada is the largest single country market for U.S. wine with retail sales of about $1.1 billion last year and about 90% of the American wine exported comes from California's vineyards. The new trade pact is known as the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement. It means the Canadian federal government agrees to resolve the grocery store access issue primarily in British Columbia, with the help of provincial leaders as well as settling that WTO case brought by Washington. A few more details about that agreement with Mexico and Canada regarding trade. According to the Washington Post, the USMCA stipulates that the three nations will review the agreement after six years. If all parties agree it's still good, then the deal will continue for the full 16-year period with the ability to renew after that for another 16 years. Now, this was a compromise position. Trump wanted the ability to renegotiate the deal frequently. Ultimately, there will be a review, but it won't happen until after Trump leaves office. And there was some news on the trade front regarding wheat. Rod Bain has the details. Dairy was the high-profile ag issue connected to U.S., Mexican, and Canadian negotiations that led to what is being called the USMC Trade Agreement. But as the chief ag negotiator of the U.S. Trade Representative's office, Greg Dowd, notes, wheat was also a sticking point in ag trade between our nation and our northern neighbor. Specifically, U.S. wheat could only be sold in Canada as feed wheat. In trade terms, we say that that does not meet the terms for national treatment. In other words, they have to treat our wheat the same as their wheat if it's the same quality. The recent agreement between the U.S. and Canada, however, means that Canada has now agreed to grade imports of U.S. wheat in a matter no less favorable than Canadian wheat, and that's a big step forward. Ambassador Dowd adds Canada will no longer require a country of origin labeling statement on U.S. wheat imports. Now, there's some things related to seed use that are a little uncertain at this point, but a North Dakota farmer should be able, if he wants to use a Canadian elevator across the border, he ought to be able to do that now as a result of this. I'm Rod Bay reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Sunflower, beans, and rice continue to be harvested in Sutter County. In the Sacramento Valley, rice harvest began and harvest continues for safflower. In Tulare County, cotton bloomed, bowls were set, alfalfa was cut and baled, corn and sorghum were harvested for silage. Table and wine grape harvest is ongoing. Some late variety grapes were covered to protect from rain. Raisin grapes were harvested and laid out for sun drying, while dried raisins were picked up. Asian pears, nectarines, peaches, pears, plums, pomegranates, and quince were being harvested. Stone fruit orchards were sprayed and fertilized. Some old stone fruit orchards were torn out for replacement with new trees. Persimmons were maturing well. The olive harvest has begun. Valencia orange harvest continues with light volumes. Citrus groves are being skirted, hedgerowed, and irrigated. Naval orange fruit thinning was ongoing. Citrus budding began for some varieties. Pushed-out citrus groves were being prepped for planting. Finger lime harvest is beginning in Tulare County. Almond and pistachio harvest is continuing. Orchard floors were prepped for harvest. Walnuts are being irrigated. The walnut harvest was underway in some locations. In San Mateo County, Brussels sprout harvest has begun. Cucumbers, peppers, and tomatoes were still being harvested in Tulare County. In the Sacramento Valley, processing tomatoes continue to be harvested. Brassica and lettuce continues to be harvested in Monterey County. Despite a smattering of rain last week, rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was rated to be in poor condition. 
condition. Cattle continue to be provided supplemental feed. Sheep are grazing on fallowed fields. If you love fruit, you will love what USDA forecasts have noted for the 2018 production outlook for some non-citrus fruit crops. We expect nearly steady to moderately increased production levels for U.S. crops of apples, pears, grapes, peaches in 2018. That's Agriculture Department economist Agnes Perez with a summary. She starts with a look at U.S. apple production for this year. The U.S. apple crop is forecast at 11.5 billion pounds. Up slightly from 2017, but if realized, would mean the second largest apple crop over the last decade. Declines in production along the Pacific coast and same to lower production in the northeast and mid-Atlantic growing regions were offset by more apples grown in states like Michigan. During this year's growing season, we saw a heavier bloom in the alternate bearing tendency last year's small crop means likely a bigger crop this year. Pear crops year over year will be about the same. Production increases in Washington and Oregon offset by lower production in California. However, for grapes... U.S. grape production is forecast at 15.3 billion pounds, up 4% from a year ago. Perez says despite lower production estimates for major grape-producing states New York and Pennsylvania... Production is expected to increase in a lot of the top-producing states including California. Production in California is forecast to increase 4%. U.S. peach production, meanwhile, is expected up this year by 5%. And that is due to a reversal of fortune for two major peach-growing states. In South Carolina and Georgia, two of the largest peach-producing states, last year their crops were severely damaged by freeze. So this year their production is expected to rebound because they had better growing conditions. That is expected to offset a 6% production decline in California's peach crop. Perez says consumers will be happy with not just more fruit available. For most crops, the increased production and larger supplies should mean lower prices for fresh apples, pears, and peaches at the store or market in the coming months. Although that's not necessarily what tree fruit growers want to hear. These nearly steady to moderately increased production levels are going to likely put downward pressure on grower prices. An exception to the price trend is in grapes, where despite increased production, tighter supplies should boost grower prices. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. California generates more farm revenue than any other state, yet until recently there was no requirement to report agricultural water consumption. And that changed in 2007 with the introduction of a new state law requiring irrigation districts to file annual reports on water being delivered to their farm customers. The program became known as FarmGate reporting because irrigation districts must document monthly the deliveries to the diversion gates where water leaves the district's distribution canal and moves onto private farmland. But unlike other states that do things electronically, in California, these are written reports that must be filed by the irrigation districts. As a result, according to one recent analysis, fewer than half are even doing that much. Reporter Matt Weiser has written about this topic for Water Deeply, and he says the reason California allows written documentation instead of electronic documentation was probably due to political pressure. It was done this way, I think, because um, it was a big step for the state, which has always been had a very sort of a laissez-faire attitude towards managing groundwater. And when the law was passed, I think um, the legislature didn't want to drop the hammer too hard on 
on groundwater users. So this is how they did it. And as you pointed out, there there was no online filing required, although the latest change in the law does create a process for online filing. So that may make it easier for some people to file and perhaps we'll see better compliance. Weiser says Colorado and Idaho are good examples of what he calls top-down water accounting. In both cases, the state collects its own data on water distribution by maintaining hundreds of measurement devices on irrigation canals. Irrigators are not required to send in any reports because the state gathers the data itself, in many cases using real-time sensors that are linked to state computers by telemetry devices. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. More apples but fewer pears will come from California's farms this season. The U.S. Agriculture Department estimates California's apple production will increase 16%, that compared to a year ago. Production will be down in the nation's top producing state, Washington, leaving the overall apple crop stable. The USDA projects California pear production will be down about 18%, due in part to what it's called inconsistent weather during the growing season. This time of year, agritourism in Northern California turns its focus to the Sierra foothills, in particularly Apple Hill region east of Sacramento. According to Yelp, here are the three highest rated apple orchards worth visiting. High Hill Ranch in Placerville, Boa Vista Orchards in Placerville, and Rainbow Orchards in Camino. Remember Betty Davis as poor Apple Annie in the movie Pocket Full of Miracles? In that 1961 movie, she's selling bright red apples, most likely the red delicious variety, which at one time in this country was the king of all apples. It was back in the day when people liked to buy apples because they looked good. Doug Rains is a research technician at the Agriculture Department's Appalachian Fruit Research Station in Kearneysville, West Virginia. They do all kinds of research work on all kinds of fruit trees, including apples. And yes, that bright red apple has become an icon, hasn't it? Kids and artists almost always portray apples as bright and consistently red. Well, it all began back when this song was a big hit. 1875, on Jesse Hyatt's farm in Iowa, a seed from one of his apple trees must have mutated. It took root, and despite efforts to cut it down, it kept coming back over and over. Finally, he just let it grow, and 10 years later, it produced a crop of beautiful red apples. He later sold what he called the Hawkeye variety to a nursery, which renamed it Red Delicious to compete with the then-new Golden Delicious, proclaiming the red one as the Marvel apple of the age. And by the time this song was a hit... Yes, in the 1940s, Red Delicious was the most popular apple. And even into the 1980s, Red Delicious accounted for about 75% of Washington State's apple production. And Doug Rain says it wasn't just because it tasted better than the other apples. In fact, quite the opposite. And it wasn't just because it was a pretty red apple, although the color did have something to do with farmers wanting to grow it. Growers could pick them and get them on the market because they looked like they were ripe. But when people ate them, they realized that they really weren't ripe, that they hadn't developed enough flavor. They were still very starchy. The red color was there regardless of the ripeness, so growers could, as he said, pick those red apples earlier, get them to market sooner, get paid quicker. Plus, even though maybe the apples were not fully ripe, that was an advantage for long-distance shipping. If they pick them when they're not quite ripe, 
They ship better than apples that arrived. Probably one of the reasons Red Delicious was so popular was because it was a good shipper. You know, it could travel from the West Coast to the East Coast and still arrive at the stores in pretty good shape. Sometimes they'd be ripe when shoppers bought them and would taste pretty good. Other times, not so good. And finally, in the late 1990s, the Red Delicious variety began to lose market share. Production dropped 40%, and Doug says... With farmers markets and things like that, and a lot of growers are picking fruit that's tree ripe, and then people are getting to appreciate what fruit tastes like when it's fully mature and ripe. So slowly over time, people are becoming educated and finding other options too, right? Delicious. Sweet ones like Golden Delicious, Honey Crisp, Fuji, Scaleless, John of Gold Sweet. And on and on. Red Delicious, still the most common apple grown in the U.S., but over 60% of those apples are now shipped to other countries. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Steve Lyle from the California Department of Food and Agriculture files this report about Apple Hill. And it's not just apples anymore up there. It's a warm October morning at Abel's Apple Acres, and the parking lot is filling up fast. In the kitchen, Evelyn Abel and her staff are getting ready for the busiest weekend of the year. The two middle weekends of October are our biggest. We try to get people to know we're open through Christmas. A lot of people still think it's just October. Abel's Apple Acres is a popular destination for visitors to Apple Hill, a region of more than 50 small family farms and ranches in the Sierra foothills near Placerville. Each uh, farm has different items, like uh, some of them have apple turnovers and apple pies. All the apples, caramel apples. We just eat all day, I think. Agricultural tourism is growing nationwide as farm owners add on-the-farm sales and other activities to diversify their operations and increase their profits. All right, as you pick, you need to get a hold of your apple and give it a twist like a doorknob. You'll twist it and pull, it's going to come off there without breaking the branch, okay? I never thought we'd be like this, no. Tourism, no, it's a major item. Apple Hill is now vibrant and prosperous, but 50 years ago, its future looked far from certain. For founder Eddie Delfino and his neighbors, going into the tourism business was a matter of necessity. In 1958, this area produced 62,000 tons of pears. Pear decline came in in 1958, and by 1963, the production had dropped from that to 10,000. We were trying anything to, to save the industry. There's an area in Southern California that's called Oak Glen, where they have ranch marketing. So we went down and saw their operation, and that's how we started Apple Hill. An important factor in Apple Hill's success is the variety of activities available to visitors, not just during the fall, but year-round. It started out for usually the month of October, but we've been trying to expand that season you know, with Christmas trees and soft fruits, the cherries and peaches in the spring. Pumpkins, of course, it's Halloween and people love it. And it's just like a Christmas tree. They look for that special one. We have a straw maze and I love horses. So we put my horses to work. And then the wineries in the area, they've helped a lot too. People come up to the wineries and also stop by here, which helps. 
For growers, agritourism can provide the means not only to sell their produce without taking it to market, but also to guarantee the integrity of their land and the prosperity of their families for generations to come. This would be houses. This wouldn't be a ranch. This would be probably cut up into houses, most of the area. It's a great family thing. All my kids, now my grandkids, and now the great kid, grandkids are coming. They've learned how to work. They've all learned good values, and it keeps my family close. There's the famous K, that these will go in the oven. We've probably made about 20 trays of these today, and we're not even that busy today. You know, Apple Hill's gonna celebrate its 50-year anniversary. Wow, if we could go another 50 years, what a good testimony that would be for us, right? Because the old timers, my father-in-law's 82, he did a great job to get us where we are right now. Let's see what we can do to go the next 50 years. If there is one enemy of levees throughout California, it's rodents. They dig into dirt levees like you can't believe. They can cause damage that can threaten lives and crops. As many dam and safety inspectors have found, rodents can really do a lot of damage to levees. But a lot of places are trying to get away from rodenticides. There is an option. It's raptors. We've talked about barn owls on this program before, but did you realize that there are other raptors out there that do a great job of feeding on the rodents that might be destroying your levees that are protecting your livelihood. We're talking with Jane Braxton Little. Jane is a writer, a, a freelance writer who does a lot of environmental writing for many publications. This particular one was in The Revelator, and it was about some experiments done down in Ventura County to determine the effectiveness of raptors versus rodents on levees. Jane, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Let's uh, delve into what was going on down there in Ventura County. Well, they had a problem. They have something like um, 40 miles of levees, and the levees were being uh, used as homes for pocket gophers and California ground squirrels. The burrows that these rodents can make can be as long as, as uh, 35 feet, so you can imagine the damage that they would do, there was the threat of subsidence uh, and levees completely collapsing. So for years, they've been using bait poison, uh, mostly uh, anticoagulant rodenticides, and uh, that was pretty effective. But in uh, 2005, Ventura County was concerned about, um, asked all of its county departments to minimize the use of, of poisons uh, in any of their any of their projects. What brought that on was public outrage over the uh, thickness and death of bobcats, coyotes, household pets, and most notably P-22, which is the mountain lion that was famous for lurking around the Hollywood sign um, in uh, L.A. County. That uh, mountain lion actually was uh, poisoned by anti-rodenticides anticoagulant rodenticides, but recovered. So folks in Ventura County were saying enough of this, and the county enacted uh, not a complete ban, but a an ordinance that required all the counties to minimize their use of, of pesticides and uh, rodenticides. So that put the Water Protection District in a tough spot. They had uh, to figure out a way to control the rodents 
uh, but minimize, minimize the pesticide use. And they came up with this pilot project using raptors. It had been done, raptors, uh, raptors had been used in neighboring Santa Barbara County to uh, control pe- uh, rodents in their levees, but nobody had conducted a scientific experiment. So that's what really interested me. In Ventura County, this was an empirical study using a scientific control site, and uh, then the, they set up perches and owl boxes to as a variable on a stretch of levee, and uh, then they monitored it for something like 18 months. And these perches were rather simple. They were about 20 feet high and, and fairly inexpensive. Quite inexpensive, and uh, the Boy Scouts helped them build them and helped them put them up. So there was an interesting community component to the whole thing, but quite inexpensive. And, of course, the birds were free. Pocket gophers and ground squirrels were the main culprits. So what were the results of the study? You have a a stretch of levee that was being protected by raptors and another, I guess, where they were using still using rodenticides. Right. That was the control. So after uh, the end of the 17-month, 18-month study, they found out that the raptors were 50% more effective in controlling rodents than the bait poisons, and they saved them $7,400 per levy mile. So they were much, much more cost-effective. I think they figured out that over 30 years, the um, raptors could save a potential over $200,000 to the county over a 30-year period. So that's significant. Have they acted upon that? Have they gone out and built more perches and added more barn owl houses? Yes. They went from uh, 17 perches, I believe, to 127 perches. They now have 16 owl boxes. They are have these on 10 miles of levees and a third of their 55 dams. So they've expanded the program and believe they can expand expand it even further as as um, as time goes by. And I guess it was uh, some species of owls that also contributed to the demise of the rodents there, uh, the burrowing owls of all things. They had, they had found burrowing owls, some barn owls, and then five or six different raptors were, were um, attracted and in use. What were the raptors that were attracted? So they found um, red-tailed hawks, white-tailed kites, barn owls, uh, great horned owls, northern harriers, burrowing owls, cooper's hawks. I think that's it. This experiment then, I guess, was repeated in northern California. There is a project in um, Napa County, Napa-Sonoma area, where they are they put GPS collars on owls just to, to see where they were um, foraging. And they, they found that they were foraging one third of their time in, um, in the vineyards. So that is encouraging some vintners to put up owl boxes and, uh, mostly it's owls there. They put cameras in owl boxes and they documented that a pair of owls with four chicks can eat up to a thousand rodents in a breeding cycle. So that's pretty significant. And that study is going to go on to see if they can't expand um, their understanding of what owls and raptor, other raptors are doing in vineyards. 
I, I think also we should remember that um, anticoagulant rodenticides are very much available in California, even though household over-the-counter sales were banned in 2014. And these poisons are really out there. 75% of the wildlife that's been tested tests positive for ARs, and they're affecting something like 37 different species in California. We could extend the conversation from sort of uh, agricultural areas like Ventura County. When you get to the backcountry um, in both the Sierra and northwestern California, the poisons that are mostly used on uh, cannabis grows, illegal pot farms, are affecting northern spotted owls, they're affecting fishers, both of which are threatened, and they're affecting bears and coyotes and on and on. So uh, California, and not just California, but California specifically, has a real big problem with these anticoagulant rodenticides. The battle against rodents who are destroying levees continues, and it looks like raptors, barn owls, may be part of the solution. You can read all about it. Jane Braxton Little wrote about raptors to the rescue in therevelator.org. Jane Braxton Little, good to talk with you. Thanks for a few minutes of your time. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Fred. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.